How's everybody feeling today? Are you doing good? We're still kind of talking about the higher and lower self, and maybe we would call today's message um, Connecting with the Cosmic Christ. Connecting with the Cosmic Christ. Okay, what am I talking about? Come with me. Let's start in John, and then we'll go to Colossians, and we'll see where we end up. Again, I want everybody to notice I'm reading from the Bible (laughs) and allowing it to inform my thinking, but maybe just digging in a little bit deeper and looking at passages that aren't normally talked about in evangelical Pentecostal Word of Faith circles. All right, John, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, the term in the beginning is, does, actually does not denote a sequencing of events. Uh, we have con- we've been conditioned to think, uh, because of Newtonian physics in sort of these linear timeline, past, present, future, cause, effect type things, so we think it's denoting time or uh, a beginning, right? But in the Greek, it's actually the word RK, RK, which means the first in a series, or if you understand or know anything about what an archetype is. So an archetype is a uh, model or a prototype of... Uh, the beginning of something, but everything that comes after it holds to that model. So you, it, whatever car you drive, somewhere there's a blueprint, there's an original blueprint and an original prototype of that vehicle. In a sense, that's the archetype of the vehicle that you have. Yeah. Got it? Um, the original car, the original Ford, would be the archetype of all cars. See how that, sort of how that works? So, in the beginning, in the RK was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says in verse 14, it's a very peculiar translation. I'm going to give you the traditional sense. Verse 14, it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the word among there, I did this several months ago. Maybe you were here and remember it. Maybe you were here and don't remember it. Or maybe you weren't here at all. But the word among there in the Greek is uh, transliterated en or in. Every place in scripture except for two places in some translations where that word is used, it, it is translated inside. In. In Christ. They went in the house. They went in the temple. I looked at every, every one. It's translated among twice. <laughs> Once in John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And once in Luke 17, it gets translated in some translations where Jesus said the kingdom is among you instead of within you. But both places could be correctly translated within you. Now that changes a lot of how you read John if it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt within us, rather than the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But I'm going to go ahead and go with the Among Us translation just for the sake of tradition and translation. Is that cool? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, He comes after me. He is preferred before me, for he was before me. Then Jesus shows up. It's interesting how John writes his gospel. I love, absolutely love the gospel of John. I love how he writes it. Because in verse 35, it says, Again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus, as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and seeing them said, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is translated teacher. So, First thing you see is they're seeking to be taught. They're not seeking to be saved. They're seeking to be taught. And they said, where are you staying? The word staying there is the word that could also be translated and is translated abiding. Meno in the Greek. Where are you abiding? And then he says what? Come and see. And they came and saw where he was abiding and remained with him that day. Now, if they just wanted to check out Jesus' digs, if they just wanted to see his man cave, why is that even in the gospel? Because if you understand... The whole point of John's gospel is the indwelling of Christ. You'll see the entire gospel differently. And John is not, you know, whoever wrote the book of John is not an embedded reporter. I mean, John the disciple is not sitting there taking notes. Oh, this is how this happened. So he could give an accurate eyewitness testimony of what happened. He's writing the book in order to impact the readers so that they may come into an experience. If you look later on in the book, it says uh, that you may know, I write these things that you may have eternal life. (laughs) Or that you may know that you have eternal life. And the word for know there is the word gnosis. And the word gnosis means to know through your own sensory experience. To know for yourself because you have experienced something. So in other words, he's trying to bring you into an experience. What experience is he trying to bring you into? The, 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 the dwelling place, what you're supposed to see when you're reading the gospel is go on a journey following Jesus the rabbi through the gospel who is going to show you where he may know where he abides. This is important. Because <laughs> when we get to John 14, verse 1, he says... Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Right? And we have written songs and hymns and preached sermons that Jesus left, and he's up there in heaven building something. Preparing something. I, I don't know how many of you, like old-time believers like myself, remember Keith Green? But Keith Green, you know, sang that song. It took him seven days to build heaven. He's been working on my, or build the earth. He's been working on my home for 2,000 years. 
Because we automatically project, we bring our presuppositions, our conditioned thinking to the text. He is not talking about a second coming. Because <laughs> he's talking to his disciples. And he's talking about his going away being his dying, not his... Put it in its context. He's not talking to you in the 21st century. He's talking to his disciples on the night that he is betrayed. And the Father's house isn't some pl- on some planet someplace where He's building a mansion for you so you can live out all your bitter envy and jealousy and greed that you had on earth because it sucked and you were just, you know, suffering through and you, whatever. But when we all get to heaven, we'll sing and shout the victory. Guess what the word rooms is there? It's, it's, it's a play on the word abiding place, dwelling place. In my Father's house are many rooms. Makes more sense anyway. How do you fit a mansion inside a house anyway? Alright. I always, I say that, but like, I don't know if people get it, because it's just like, do you get it? Like a mansion's typically bigger than a house, so how do you put many mansions inside a house? That ought to let you know right there that there's a screwed up translation. Come on, help me out, guys. I'm trying to bring forth some truth, and I know it goes against your Sunday school, but come on, let's just think. He says that where I am, what? There you would be also. So he goes through this whole thing. And, and, and so, so Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said, I am, and it's that word we looked at last week. Uh, I'm, ego, I, me. It's two eyes. I, in the Greek, it's I, I am. Or I am, I am. There's two eyes. It's the I am presence, really. I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. And from now on you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long? And yet you have not known me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? And the words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the works sake. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father, and etc. and so on. Right? Verse 19. A little while longer, and the world will see me. I'm sorry, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I'm in you. That's the house. In my Father's house. Where's the Father's house? Don't you know it's the Father dwelling, staying, abiding in me that's doing the work? And in the... (laughs) And when I go away, not when I stay in my historical presence as Jesus the person, when I go away, you will come to know something. Guess what that word know is? Gnosis means you will know for yourself by your own experience that I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I'm in you and you're in me. In other words, no duality. 
No me down here and God up there. No me over here and Jesus over here. No me here and Jesus back in history. No duality. That's the Father's house. So, so when the, when the disciples say, when Jesus says to him, what do you seek? Oh man, I'm feeling the presence of God. When, when, when Jesus' disciples say, what do you seek? And he, they said, we want to know where you're dwelling. And he says, come and see. This is what the whole gospel is supposed to empower you to see. And there's absolutely no mention in here up to this point of sin, death, resurrection, blood, all that stuff, angry God. You don't find that anywhere in John's Gospel. Now watch this. All that to get to verse 17. Man, i got a bunch of scripture I want to throw at you, but I'm spending more time here than I wanted to. John 17, verse 1. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You. Now look what He says in verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself. If I'm doing something, we're here together with each other, there's still duality. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, glorify me with yourself. Oneness. Glorify me with yourself, with the glory which I had with you, Before the world was. Why does John put that part in chapter 17? Because he wants you to go back to chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And He is that true light who gives light to every person coming into the world. That's what He wants you to see. That's what, so here's what, here's the way it happens. The Word incarnates and becomes flesh and dwells among us so that we can see His glory. But when you get to chapter 17, what does He do? He leaves flesh to return back to the glory that He had with the Father before the world was. And then prepared a place for you so that where He is, you can be also. I'm just reading scripture to you. Come with me to Colossians. Now, now here's the point. If you're Jewish, if you are a Jewish person living in the first century, do you know what you expected Messiah to be? If you're a Jewish person living in the first century under Roman occupation, 
and you're reading the Old Testament about the Messianic prophecies, what are you expecting the Messiah, the Christ? Because contrary to popular belief, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Some of you in here may not know that. I'm serious. It's a title, and it, it is a Greek translation of the word Messiah. And Messiah means one who saves and delivers. So if you are a Jewish person living in the first century when Jesus came, what are you expecting the Messiah to do? Deliver you and save you from what? Roman occupation. Thank you. And do what for Israel? Make Israel the chief nation. It's in all the first century documents. You've heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Some of you may have gone up to Denver last year or something and saw them because uh, they had them on, on exhibit up there at the Denver Museum. So in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have this thing called the War Scroll. They have these things called the Melchizedek Scroll. And it gives you a really good idea what they expected Messiah to do. Messiah was to be a political leader. He was to be obviously Jewish, and he was going to lead the Jews who fancied themselves to be the sons of light against all the sons of Belial. And guess who the sons of of Belial were? All the other nations, the Gentile nations. And they were going to slaughter them, and they were going to conquer them, and that was their expectation. So Jesus is messing them up with his parables. That's why the rich man and Lazarus... For those of you that were following in the in the first service when we were talking about hell, the rich man and Lazarus, the word the, the the name Lazarus is a is a Gentile name. So the rich man who is the seed of Abraham, who ha, should have the blessings according to Deuteronomy twenty eight, if you obey my word and keep my commandments and do those things that are right in my sight, then you'll be the head, not the tail, above, not beneath, blessed, 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 increase, 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 increase. If you don't know that, you've never watched TBN. That's who the, the is, should be at the top. And Lazarus, the Gentile, is, is a beggar, and he's under the curse of God. Because the same chapter says, if you disobey my words, you disobey my commandments, then all these curses will come upon you. Everything you do will turn. You'll have the Midas touch in reverse. Touch gold and it turns to junk. Right? And then, But which one ends up in torment? And which one ends up in comfort? You see what Jesus is doing? He's radically jarring their expectations of who he's supposed to be. The other parable where he talks about hell, guess what? He says God will separate the nations as sheep and goats. So if you want to preach hell from that verse, then your salvation is based on what nation you belong to because he's judging nations, not individuals. Go back and read the parable. Because Jesus is not trying to teach about hell. Jesus is trying to jar their thinking because they have the wrong expectation of who He's supposed to be. Are you breathing? So when Paul is writing in Colossians, he is basically dealing with the same issue of who Christ is. Who is Christ? That's the question. So when you start, let's just start in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, verse 11, nope, verse 13, sorry. 
He, being Christ, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom. I'm sorry, God. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Everybody note that statement, Son of His love. Okay, here's the point. What he's saying is, is the Son of His love is the... this, This kind of diminishes it, but it's the best way I know how to say it. The byproduct, the fruit of the Father's love is the Son. Just like you're the byproduct of your mommy and daddy's love. But it's important because Christ then is uniquely the expression of the love of God. It doesn't say the son that he loves. It says the son of his love. So everything that the son is, is a byproduct or expression of the unconditional giving love of God. All right. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. Watch this. Now, Christ means what? Messiah. First century Jews were expecting a political Messiah. He's saying, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the expression of God's love who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. So in other words, the Son was there before creation existed. Same thing we saw in John. Watch this. For by Him, all things were created. That's No wonder we're so messed up. The King James gets this better. It's not by Him all things were created. In Him. No wonder Christians don't think straight about who Christ is. One little word. For in Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him. In Him, through Him and for Him. He's the beginning. In Him, through Him, and for Him. In the arche was the Word. And all things were... And He is before all things. And in Him all things consist. If something has a consistency, what what is that? What is consistency? It's held together. So here's what he's saying. Not only is things are created, get get this idea, in him, he's the image of God. He's before all things. Everything was created in him. Everything visible and invisible, by him, for him, through him, and he keeps them going. That Christ is completely and totally universal. 
In other words, Paul has to say, when I'm talking about Messiah, I'm not talking about a political leader. And frankly, he's not reducing the Messiah down to, oh, help me, Lord. Please help me. I love your people. He is not reading. I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading the Bible. He is expanding it beyond. That's a better way to say it. Thank you. He is expanding it beyond the person of Jesus of Nazareth to be this universal presence that holds all things, that contains all things, created all things, and gives all things their consistency. That's how he's describing Christ. Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you. Glorify me with yourself. (laughs) With the glory I had before the world was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... So Jesus, the man, when he's praying in John 17, is getting ready to put off himself to return to the expansive consciousness of the universal Christ. Which is why you've you got to understand that Mary particularly Mary Magdalene, is symbolic. She's symbolic. Particularly, hmm. particularly in regards to the church. So when she sees Jesus after he's risen from the dead in the garden, she does not recognize him. Because he's not beholden to any past form by which she knew him. Because it isn't the historical place. See, if John doesn't include that in his gospel, then you might think that where he dwells is Nazareth 2,000 years ago. You might think where he dwells is on that cross where he died 2,000 years ago. So Mary grabs him. And what does he say to her? Don't hold on to me. Why? Do we need to go back and look at it? Because I want to stay in Colossians. Because I have not yet ascended to my God. I have not yet ascended to my Father. What does that mean? He has not yet been glorified with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. And so here's what he's saying. Don't lock me into time and space. Don't even lock me into my resurrection or the empty tomb. Don't lock me into a historical event. Because my glory is so much greater than anything you could possibly imagine. 
And it's a picture of the church trying to hold on to the historical Jesus who is trying to ascend and return to the place of being the universal Christ. And so we held on to him and hung him on crosses in cathedrals around the world. And we and it's evangelical. And we, when we, it's easy for us to be oh, you know, those Catholics. We believe in a risen Christ. I remember we we were arrogant in the in the Methodist Church about our empty cross. Yeah. Yeah. We had a cross, but it was an empty cross because Jesus overcame death. So we're better than the Catholics because they have Jesus dead on the cross. We have the empty cross. And then we became Pentecostal charismatics. We have no cross because we don't believe in symbols or altars or any of that stuff. And they have any value. Right? But we still try to lock people into having to intellectually believe something that they cannot experience for themselves, that locks Jesus into time and space, that prevents, when when the whole thing is, you can, Paul is trying to get them to see the transcendence of Christ. And the unity that the Christ has with the man Jesus. The ego, I mean. The I, I am. Are you breathing? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to get that in your mind first. Or you can't understand what he says later, a few verses down. Where he says again in verse 24, I'm reading my Bible. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, that I may fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. See, now it makes sense. It... Because if he's before all things, if he created all things, if all things are in him, all things are for him, all things are through him, and he's giving everything its consistency... Everywhere, in the universe, in the multiverse, in every dimension, in every realm. Including beings that are that we call devils. Paul is setting for a, forth a completely non-dualistic frame. There's no life outside of Christ. There's no existence outside of Christ. There's no being held together outside of Christ. Really, there's no good, no bad, no light, no darkness, no right, no wrong. No. Hmm. Yeah, that went over about like I thought it would. Your ego, your, your fallen self that loses God consciousness and Christ consciousness wants to hold on to dualism, 
when the love of God is non-dualistic. All right, let's do it this way. If you understand this frame, if you take this frame back to Jesus' teachings, they make sense. All right, let's, we'll come back to that. Hold that thought. Watch. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But who is Paul preaching to? Gentiles! So he's helping them understand. It's not a Jewish Messiah. It's not a national thing. It's not a political thing. It's none of that. The Christ, the Savior and Deliverer, is completely universal. And you don't have to look outside yourself. You don't have to look up in heaven. It's not Him up there and you down here. Christ is the all-pervasive presence. And if He is the all-pervasive presence that is giving life and consistency and creation to all things, then guess what? He's also giving life and creation and consistency to you as well and and therefore Christ is in you and the fellowship of the mystery and the revelation among the Gentiles is that they would also realize that Christ was in them and he is the son of the love of God which means when you find Christ in you You experience nothing but total, eternal, limitless, unconditional love. Now what Jesus says makes sense. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Man, I can feel the presence of God. I mean, I can really feel the anointing. Like my hand is on fire. Think with me. Non-dualistic frame. Matthew 5, verse 43. For you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Look at this that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those, for if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do this. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. I mean, you want to talk about cherry-picking verses? This is how, I mean, I'm telling you, for years, this is how the gospel is presented. God wants you to be, you have to be perfect. Now, if you grew up with a perfectionistic mother, and you got that sort of OCD, I have to be perfect mindset, that's a terrible thing to hear. Because how do you know you're measuring up? And so we, again, old McDonald Christianity. If you guys don't learn anything these coming weeks, you're going to, because that's what we do. Here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. We don't put it in its context, which is what I'm trying to do. 
So we pluck that out of context and say, be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Oh, but you can't be perfect because you were born flawed in sin. So now God's going to get you for being born. Oh no, it's not about being born, really? Try try telling somebody that you, you were born perfect. Try telling somebody that you don't have sin. Oh, no, 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 no. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We scratch out the part where it says, and all were justified freely by His grace. In the next breath, we just mark that out of the Bible. So we cherry pick. Here, verse, there, verse, everywhere, verse, verse. It's true. Being perfect has nothing to do with your... And it sets you up for the exact opposite. It's like God's sitting up there demand Not unconditional love. Conditional love. This passage is teaching unconditional love. <laughs> your Father causes the sun to shine on the good and on the evil. On the just and on the unjust. He sends rain on the good. He sends rain on the evil. He sends rain on the just. And He sends rain on the unjust. And if you will love those, if you'll love just as indiscriminately as He loves, then you will be sons, byproducts of His love. You'll, you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. Therefore, be perfect. The word perfect means complete. It means, it means without, without, um, uh, distinction. In other words, when you love your enemy, and you love your friends, and you love your neighbors, and you love your family, your love is perfect. And when your love is perfected, you have no more fear, because perfect fear can't abide in the presence of perfect love. So really, when Jesus says, love your enemy, He's teaching you how to stop fearing your enemy. But here's the point. If Christ is an all-pervasive presence and you identify with Christ, you lose duality. Watch this. Dualistic love says, I'll love you if you're good. I won't love you if you're bad. I'll love you if you're just. I won't love you if you're unjust. It filters love through the lens of judgment of good and evil. If you are going to love like God, you cannot judge. It's that simple. Guys, I'm reading the Bible. So watch this. If there's no dualism... See, here's our problem. Can you stay with me for just a couple more minutes? If I'm identified with the Christ who's in me... I have no separate other to protect and maintain. And because that Christ is universal, then whatever I do to you, I do to me. Now the Christian ethic makes sense. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Unto you. Why? Because if you're identified with a Christ in you, then whatever you do to anyone else, you're doing to Him. And if you're Him, you're doing it to you. And guess what? In order for you to learn that, the world is set up so that whatever you sow, that shall you also reap. 
judge not, lest you be judged. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why? Because if I do it to you, I'm doing it to me. Give, and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Men shall give into your bosom. Why? Because if I'm doing it to you, I'm doing it to me. So by giving it to you, I'm causing it to come to me. By judging you, I'm causing judgment to come back to me. By loving you, I'm causing love to come back to me. All right, still don't believe me? Come with me to Matthew 25, and this is where we'll close. So we, we have this us against them, God's with us, and he's not with them. Christ is with us and on our side. He's not on their side. And just step back from it for a minute and look how divisive that's been. Not only does it divide us from heathens, if God is going to send a heathen to eternal conscious torment, it justifies any unkindness or violence we want to do against them because it's nothing compared to what God's going to do to them. And God's on our side. And we can't even get together. We have so many different denominations. And then even within churches, we have, oh, she's a witch. He's a witch. Oh, they're bringing in the devil. Oh, they're bring... they're not living right. Oh, they're over there in sin. Oh, pastor, why don't you do something about that? Oh, they ought not be doing that. They shouldn't be living like that. What do they think they're doing? They should know better. That devil's going to get you. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them, the nations, one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there goes Jesus. There goes your whole theology of Jesus building a mansion for you in heaven. Because Jesus said right there, enter into the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. There goes your theology that Jesus had to die on the cross and defeat the devil in order for the kingdom to be established. Because if he had to die on the cross and defeat the devil in order for the kingdom to be established, how could he say it was prepared for you from before the foundation of the world? Okay. I'm reading the Bible. I'm sorry I'm messing up your theology that you think comes from the Bible. Okay. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, 
or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we come? Uh, did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Look what he says. You saw me, even, the, even they didn't get it. You saw me naked and you clothed me. You saw me hungry and you fed me. You saw me thirsty and you gave me water. (laughs) I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Lord, when? Because, because we think of him as seated in heaven on a throne. It's a parable, guys. The point of the parable is not that Jesus is coming to judge the nations based on how they, on, on their political policies. If so, the Republicans are in really big trouble. <laughs> the point is their idea that the Messiah was going to do these things, that he was going to be localized in the one person on some throne someplace is the problem. So he's presenting that reality and then overturning it by saying, you see me in the naked, you see me in the poor, you see me in the hungry, you see me in the thirsty, you see me in those who have been judged and condemned by society in prison. You see me in the stranger, the one that's not your brother, that's not like you. Why? Because the universal Christ is a pervasive presence in everyone. And that's what Paul is trying to get people to see. And now the Christian ethic makes sense. Now it's God just up there expecting you to be good. He's saying, look, when you disidentify with your ego identity... So that you become so identified with the I am Christ's presence within you. You see with new eyes and you lose duplicity. The Father's in you. You're in the Father. I'm in you. You're in me. And if that reality exists for all creation, then whatever I do to another, I do to myself. Whatever I do for another, I do for myself. It's not God up there saying, hmm, well, let's see. let's see if we can make this harder. I know, you think you're doing pretty good loving your neighbor. Think you're doing pretty good loving your family. I don't know. I saw that quarrel your family had a while back, but you're staying together. But let's let's make it harder. I know. Love your enemies. And if you don't, some tick marks against you. And your grace preachers can come along and hear a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse. <laughs> Twist and distort and change. You know, you know what's really interesting? And then I'm done. It's really interesting. Peter, Peter said this about Paul. It's in Second Peter chapter 3. I won't... I won't bo- Waste your energy taking, taking you there, but you can check me out. Or it's somewhere in Second Peter. It's a short book. It's only like three, three chapters. Or maybe it's First Peter. Anyway, Peter said it about Paul. <laughs> Paul said, he, he said, our beloved brother Paul writes about the salvation that we have in Christ. 
And he writes of things that are hard to be understood. That unlearned people twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Twist the scriptures to their own destruction as they do. Twist twist what Paul says to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You know what the word for twist there is in the Greek? Really fascinating. It actually means to torture. The idea is to put a person on the rack and start twisting and contorting their body to get a confession out of them. So basically, torturing them to get them, twisting them to torture them to get them to say what you want them to say. And Peter says, people are already doing that with Paul, and they do that with all the other scriptures. So when you have cherry picking, here a verse, there a verse, everywhere a verse, verse, you end up with this crazy conglomeration of stuff that makes sense to you because it's how it's preached to you, but it has no reality to it. And therefore, the real seed of Christ is not in it. So it does not have the power and potential to really transform your thinking and your life. Which is why you have a bunch of people who want to profess the Christian doctrine, but don't have a clue how to manifest the Christian ethic. And as long as we lock the gospel into time and space, into a historical event, into a historical person, outside of us and other than us, through this sort of mechanical process that God goes through to save you, which I promise you, if you will allow yourself to get outside that paradigm, it will make no sense to you anymore. And we pull verses and sew them together like fig leaves to cover our own nakedness. All right. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to say maybe we need to rethink some things. Maybe we need to relook at some things. Maybe things aren't like we thought. Because if we lock it up in time and space and it's completely other than us and it's completely separate from us and it's completely outside of us, then there's nothing there that has the... And and, and salvation is this mechanical process of righteousness. Everybody's worried about being righteous with God. You know where that comes from? Catholicism. Ancient, not ancient, Dark Ages Catholicism. I don't know why I'm doing this. You know how Martin Luther got his idea of justification by faith? What it meant? He didn't take it from Judaism. He didn't take it from the Old Testament. He took it from his Roman Catholic understanding. And why did the Reformation happen? Let's just review it again. Why did the Reformation happen? Because they were selling indulgences. Do you know what an indulgence is? Let me tell you. So you had a lot of rich, wealthy people, greedy people, whoremongering people coming into the Catholic Church 
and they were worried their lifestyle wasn't sufficient to get them into heaven because of the Catholic teachings. You still with me? So the Catholics had a problem because they didn't want to tell the wealthy people like Jesus, go sell all you have and give it to the poor because they wanted it to come to them. So here's what they said. There are certain people who are so saintly, their righteous deeds go way above and beyond anything that they need to get them into heaven. So they've earned a lot of extra credit. They've indulged themselves in righteousness. So what can happen is, if you'll give a gift to the church, then a priest has the authority to transfer their righteousness, their righteous indulgence, and credit it to your account so that you can get in. And that's what Martin Luther had a problem with. So when he hears justification by faith, he puts it in his context, not Paul's. He puts it in his, what was it, 12th century, 13th century context instead of Paul's 1st century context. So you know this whole thing about becoming the righteousness of God in Christ is based on the idea of Catholic indulgences? Because here's what Martin Luther said. No, Jesus so overindulged in righteousness. So perfectly pleased the Father. And you don't have to buy it in order for His indulgence to be credited to your account. You simply have to believe it in order for His righteousness to be credited to your account. So therefore, justification took upon the meaning of the indulgences of the Catholic Church that the Protestants were rebelling against in the first place. Because we're trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. We're trying to solve a problem that was created to enrich and empower a, polit- a, a state church political institution. And we might have gotten out of Egypt, but it's taken a long time for Egypt to get out of us. Because we don't even know where this stuff comes from. We're just our favorite preacher preached this, so that must be how it is. Because we like him. doesn't really work for us. Nobody else really wants to hear it much, but we like it. But what if God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust? What if you don't need an indulgent transfer? What if God doesn't have to see you through the blood because he can't stand you the way you are? I mean, the dumb things we say. Think about how it sounds to people outside the church. He's got to see you through the blood. What blood? Well, my sin is under the blood. Oh my gosh. It's covered by the blood of Jesus. Where is that? I'm just curious. I know where they get it. I'm really rambling. You want to, you want to know where they get it? When the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat 
but they bring their, pre- their Western presupposition with them. Watch how we bring our Western presupposition with us. If you read Leviticus, God dwells in the Holy of Holies. He's in there. He's not up looking down. And inside the box is holy things. And Leviticus says the high priest goes in there with the blood to wash away the uncleanness and the sin of the children of Israel. Not to cover it, to clean it. If you get 409 and go, get a spot on your wall, you get the 409 out, and it comes off, you cleansed it. If you have to paint over it, you covered it. The blood wasn't there to cover. The blood was there to wash away. But the point is, God was dwelling there. So he wasn't looking saying, oh, naughty, naughty, naughty. We can't look at Israel because, man, look at that. And so we have this idea that we got to be, that God can't relate to us unless He can see us through the blood. Because we're not living up to His perfection. I preached three messages today, I'm sorry. Totally denies, totally denies what that passage is saying. He calls us a terrain on the just and the unjust. Totally contradicts Deuteronomy. You gotta understand, Jesus is totally contradicting Scripture when He says that. If you obey, listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, and keep his commandments, and obey his word, then all these blessings will come upon you. Blessed will you be in the field, blessed will you be in the basket, blessed will you be in the store, blessed will you be, blessed, 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 blessed in your flocks, blessed in your herds, blessed, rich, rich, wealth, wealth. (laughs) And he actually says, he will cause it to rain on your land, in Deuteronomy 28. Then he says, if you don't obey, God's going to shut up the heavens, it's not going to rain, and... And that's what they built their religion on. That's what they built their identity on. That's what they thought God was like. And Jesus comes and completely upends it by contradicting their own scriptures. And pointing to something they themselves can experience. I know your scripture says this, but your experience tells you this. I know Deuteronomy said it shouldn't be, God shouldn't be prospering those Romans, but He is. And I know your scripture tells you if you're obedient to God and following the law, you shouldn't be suffering, but you are. You can verify it with your experience, and guess what? That's what God's like. And we do the opposite. Well, if you, brother, you gotta believe the word over your experience. And we contradict the way Jesus taught. Jesus didn't show up and say, open your Bibles. He said, a sower went out to sow seed. He didn't use the Word of God when he taught. He used stories like Pinocchio. He didn't tell the story of Pinocchio. I'm just saying. He used parables. Jesus was very unchristian. Very non-fundamentalist. All right, I got to get off my soapbox. I'm sorry. You clap it because I'm getting off my soapbox. <laughs> yes, okay, I get it. Let's pray. Let's stand up. 
Thank you for listening to me anyway. I appreciate it. Sorry if I got a little carnal. I just, I'm, I'm trying to help you see what I see. I'm trying to help you see what I see. I'm talking about the blood. The blood in the early church. You understand? One more thing about the blood. Leviticus says the reason God gave blood upon the altar was because the life of the soul was in the blood. So Jesus is able to take the wine and the bread and say, this is my body and this is my blood, because he's identifying himself with the universal Christ in whom all things are created, for whom all things are created, by whom all things are created, and in whom all things have their consistency. And if you ate and drank that, it was to help reestablish your heart to the universal connection with the cosmic Christ. That you would take that reality and internalize it so that you would realize it's in you. You're not going to find any of the early church fathers saying, my sin is under the blood. They didn't even have a framework for that. They talked about the communion elements. So it's first Sunday of the month, so we do communion. So Father, I thank you for your people. I just pray your blessing upon us. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, and help us to see these things. Let us get the ethic that what we do to others, we do to ourselves because of the universal presence of the cosmic Christ. And Lord, I thank you that as we partake today, we really do partake of your, your divine nature, which is our divine nature, and the divine nature of everyone we see. Lord, I pray if nothing else is taken away today, that we will see Jesus, we will see Christ in every person we encounter. But in order to do that, we first have to see him in ourselves. So Lord, I bless your people. I bless the elements. Thank you for this time. Anything I said that would cause offense or stumbling, Lord, please let it be forgotten. Let it be forgiven. Whatever I said that has eternal value and impact, let it remain powerful and bright and life-giving in the hearts and minds of my hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. You can come and partake of the communion elements. Have a great day.